You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you're looking for any type of battery from rangefinders to trail cameras to your truck, car batteries, anything, any type of battery that you can think of, visit your local Interstate Batteries retail location and talk with a battery specialist. For more information about the company and all of the batteries that these guys offer, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. The Nine Finger Chronicles podcast is brought to you by Vortex Optics. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson. And the first thing that I want to say is happy hump day to everybody. Hopefully, everybody's having a good week. Hopefully, you guys have had the opportunity to get out and find some sheds. And if you're in a state that's not necessarily good for shed hunting, you've at least have gotten outside and enjoyed Mother Nature and have taken a, uh, you know, a couple breaths of fresh air and have gotten away from all this crazy talk about the coronavirus <laughs> it makes me just kind of want to go outside and stay away from people and this time of year that's the perfect thing to do is just go outside hang out and uh, take the fam out and enjoy mother nature but I've said that twice now today's episode is very interesting because we're going to be talking with a guy who is really into different ways to let's see how do I put this he's a habitat management specialist but one thing that he does is alters the terrain to control wind direction and can to control thermals and that is the main topic of this episode is we talk a little bit about habitat management but we also talk about wind tunnels we talk about thermals we talk about wind direction we talk about how terrain affects wind direction and just a whole bunch of crazy things we talk about um, barometric pressure we talk about uh, how air 
levels can come and go in layers so it's just a crazy episode it's one that i was really excited to to do because it's something that we've never talked about before so john and i get into a discussion about scent cones and all this other stuff right so i'm not going to talk any more about what this episode's about we do in fact have to do a commercial and the commercial is with the average conservationist now you guys have seen if you follow me on instagram you have seen me talk about the average conservationist uh, line of apparel it is an apparel company and they make right now they make hats and t-shirts but the reason that i partnered with this company is because they give 10 percent of all uh, all profits to conservation organizations such as the QDMA or the National Deer Alliance or whatever these guys are donating 10% of their revenue to conservation efforts right and uh, they actually it's not boring it is an they have a badass logo they have um, I have their hats he sent me like a whole box of hats and one of my favorites right now I have the the logo hat unstructured with the square average conservationist um, with the square a- average conservationist logo on it. It's a patch logo, and then obviously there's a variety of t-shirts, and they're not the hard t-shirts; they're the soft t-shirts that lay real good. And if you're built like me, <laughs> and you you're you have some love handles. But if your shoulders are wider than your love handles, you kind of look really good in them. And then they, uh, my other favorite hat is the fixed hat camo with the broadhead patch on the front. So what you want to do is you want to go over to theaverageconservationist.com. Check out their apparel line, uh, buy some of their gear, and know that 10% of that purchase goes to conservation effort so that's a big deal if you ask me all right so enough chit chatting let's get into today's wind talk episode with john teeter and one more thing i apologize but during the recording of this episode i had an extremely sore throat and so you may hear me sucking on a cough drop and i know it's annoying at times i do apologize for that and then at the end of the episode i'm not sure what happened but i live next to an airport and it sounded to me like i was catching radio waves from the tower of the airport and the end of this podcast has some quality issues. I'm just going to kind of let it ride out because you can at least hear my questions and you can hear a little bit of the answers and sometimes they come in and sometimes they go out, but uh, it's just a little annoying and I do apologize for that, but uh, you know, that's technology for you. So here we go. All right. On the phone with me today, Mr. John Teeter. John, how you doing, man? Good, man. How you doing? I can't complain. I tell you what, we're starting to get out of the winter doldrums here in Iowa. Um, where are you located at? I'm in uh, upstate New York, right around uh, kind of uh, Lake Ontario area, just south of there in a little place called Tully, south of Syracuse. Okay. Is Tully known for anything? Well, we've got a couple ski lodges and, uh, you know, some beautiful areas. Uh, Kettle Lakes. There's pretty good fishing out here, um, but you know, otherwise it's just a small, small suburb of uh, Syracuse. Yeah, I come from a town in Iowa that 
once a year they have something called the Old Threshers Reunion. And it is one of the largest collections of steam engines, like back in the day when they used steam to power these big metal tractors, the first forms of tractors. Mm. So once a year, there's a huge gathering in my hometown, and it's all about steam engines and tractors and Oh, it's just crazy. So my 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 town comes alive once a year, and other than that, it's just <laughs> kind of uh, you know a, a a map dot. Yeah, we we got something small like that. We do, uh, and you know the weather's been changing a little bit, but we do a uh, you know ice cutting thing in in our area with these small lakes. They come in, they collect ice. They used to do it years ago for you know various purposes, but you know those those are kind of big things. I mean, I'm in the snow belt, so. We got a lot of snow up here, um, you know, a little bit different from the rest of the country where, you know, climate and the changes that we're dealing with here are a little unique. Um, and then as a result, you know, it's kind of the focus on, you know, our probably discussion today is it's really a weather discussion. Yeah. Know? So that's kind of a unique scenario. Yeah. So you get the lake effect snow, right? Love it. Yeah. Love that lake effect. Okay. So in all of your years, how much snow have you ever had in like a 24 hour period? So north of us, they've had like, we're talking like 10, 12 feet. 10 um, 12 in our feet. area, I've feet Holy in, day, in like two days, um, you know, areas like Buffalo, um, my area and things have changed a little bit, but you know, I remember getting six or seven foot, you know, in an, in an entire day. Uh, we had blizzards in the early nineties and, you know, that's uh, a little bit unique. Um, you know, we get situations around here north of me where, you know, the deer, you know, herd up and they, they kind of come off these these plateaus into valleys and they kind of escape all that craziness. Yeah. So, you know, you, you've got a big range across the state, um, you know, in, in New York, you know, you've got, you know, some major differences in, in climate and uh terrain which which really puts some uniqueness into this this area and people don't focus on this area for deer hunting um you know as much as they do the midwest but you know there's a lot of people that deer hunt in the state you know it's a big part of the the you know the business infrastructure and you know uh, uh it's expensive to live here um and and you know that's why you know you don't see a lot of people flocking in new york nowadays and, you know like i said the weather conditions don't necessarily permit you know sunny skies every day particularly in syracuse so a lot of low pressure systems sit right over syracuse yeah constantly yeah well i tell you what it's kind of funny you know you're talking about snow here and uh when i used to live down in alabama uh they canceled snow for two straight days with a quarter of an inch of snow i mean it was a dusting (laughs) and they canceled schools in iowa uh you're going to need to get about five to six inches and it depends on what time of day the the storm happens but that's about what it takes for them uh to cancel schools Uh, you know if it happens overnight and they have time to clean uh you know five six inches is nothing what's it take what's it take up where you you live to actually cancel schools well, I mean, other than cold, um, you know, because we get a lot of those polar plunges, other oh, than yeah. cold, you know, it's probably, you know, eight, nine inches, something like that. Um, but we got a lot of ice. Um, that's been that's been more prominent now than ever. And I got I got to tell you, I mean, that's that's a killer around here. You, you get oh, ice yeah. storms in March and, you know, you're setting up these, you know, these deer herds to suffer big time. I mean, this is 
you know, this is the critical time of the year for the deer. And, you know, we, we get a, we get a nasty storm in March and everything goes nice up to this point. They struggle till, till May. until we start to get a little green up and, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough run for the, for the deer. Yeah. We, uh, we ended up having something like that last year where right as the winter was coming to an end, we had a really big ice storm, which isn't too terribly bad if it melts right away but it stayed yep. on the ground and the ag fields that these deer call a food source, they were having a really hard time getting the scraps off of the field because they were frozen in there. So they had to expel yeah. a lot more energy. And I typically don't find a lot of dead deer uh, throughout the winter time, but uh, during shed hunting season last year, I found more dead deer than I'd ever found before. And some of them had already shed their antlers. So, um, that tells yeah. you, like you said, it just how important this time of year is and having decent weather, yep. uh, come through. So, yeah, yep. well, yeah, we, well, up here, we, we pray for good weather. So yeah, same here, same here. I mean, that's all Iowa is, is you need good weather to make the money, to plant the crops, to harvest the crops, you know, all that good stuff. So, yep. all right. So today you kind of mentioned, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about wind and weather and stuff like that but before we get into that why don't you talk to us a little bit about what you do for a living yeah so um you know years ago i think when i got a, out of college i had the itch to kind of kind of push myself towards the, the hunting industry and you know I, I had a fortunate opportunity to have some technical back expertise and you know i made inroads with a guy that was developing some equipment and uh we did some testing uh another friend and i and you know, basically started testing archery equipment. Um, and it, it was, it was very technical and it was kind of far beyond what anybody in the industry was doing. And this was in the early 2004, five time frame. And I was approached by a magazine company who said, Hey, you know, we saw this article you did for this, you know, would you be interested in doing some testing for us? And I said, sure. What do you want to test? They said, well, sites, you know, we could sites and this and that. I go, geez, nobody's ever tested this stuff. And so that actually rolled and rolled, and we had done all different products. I mean, I was doing 40 bows a year. We were testing compound bows, and, you know, I built really sophisticated testing equipment. I mean, some of the manufacturers didn't have the equipment we were testing with. And, you know, that, that set up a unique experience for me. And, you know, as time goes on, you know, I do different things with my career. You know, I still wanted to be writing, um, and I wanted to focus on, you know, giving information to more industry side. So the consumer wasn't getting this data. It was going to the manufacturers and, and, and the pro shops. And as time has rolled on, I've started to do other things. And I, I actually just right now, I'm just testing crossbows. I test crossbows for every company in the country. Uh, been doing that since 2009. I, I developed, you know, test standards and guidelines for these companies. And I'm pretty much, I think I'm the only guy in the country that does that. There's some other guys that do testing, but not, not the same you know, degree of testing. So there's a little bit of sophistication in there. And, you know, you know, that type of detailed approach to kind of doing this, uh, this oversight on products is kind of rolled into, you know, I used to go to the ATA show years ago. I still go. Um, and, you know, hearing all these guys talk about, you know, things they're doing hunting wise, and it kind of just sparked my interest. Like, you know, I got to take a more detailed approach to thinking about hunting. Yeah. And, you know, in that thought process and talking to industry guys, I was like, man, I'm in Syracuse, New York. Where the hell is that? You know, and as well, you know, and, and I didn't want to expose myself. And this may sound a little naive to that other environment where 
you know, world-class deer in my area, 120 inch deer, that's world-class. And, and, you know, um, it, 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 it made me have to sharpen my skills. And so over the past 10 years, you know, I've kind of grown, 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 and I've had a fair amount of success killing, you know, mature bucks, three, four, five-year-olds. And I mean, you know, we're talking there may be a couple of those in a few square miles. And, you know, there's tactics, and one of those tactics is really focusing on the conditions and um, situations and assessing those in a greater level of detail. And that's kind of rolled into this business that I started last year with designing hunting properties. And one of the big things with designing hunting properties is understanding, you know, a whole host of elements. But one of those are the conditions that are present when weather impacts your hunting conditions and assessing things kind of at a finer level. Um, you can manipulate the landscape and you got to think offensively when you're going to go after something if, if you really want to be successful and kill those, you know, top end deer. But really the approach that, that I'm going into is, you know, I'm thinking about every single factor that's going to put, you know, uh, is going to either optimize my hunting scenario or, you know, put me in a scenario where, you know, I've got the best chance to, to, to go after something. So I really got to understand things that are really fine level. And so, you know, over the past couple of years, I've been relaying that to people. And, and it's just beyond, you know, it's far beyond habitat manipulation. Um, that, that's, that's actually far more simpler than these concepts were actually, I think, are, are way more complex because there's so many elements to them. There's elements of physics, you know, elements of conditions that are completely variable. You have no control over, over weather. And right. when people think they got deer figured out and they say, well, he's on a pattern or he's somewhat predictable, yeah, he may have a pattern or they may have a pattern, but the reality of it is there's factors outside your control that you can't necessarily fix. Yeah. So how are you reacting and assessing them? So that's the whole purpose behind kind of what I'm doing. So, so in a way, um, you're you know, a land consultant for people uh, who are interested in, you know, they've bought a property, they want to hold deer on it all year round, and you kind of help them design it, not only from a hunting standpoint, but from a, a food and cover and water standpoint as well. Yeah, 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 full, full spectrum. Full spectrum, full spectrum. gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yep, absolutely. All right, yep. so um, just to kind of elaborate on what it is that you, you do, uh, talk to us a little bit about, let's say, like a client reaches out to you, he says, I want your help. What's the first thing that you do on a property when you go and you walk it for the first time? Yeah, you know, it boils down to getting back to fundamentals, um, you know, Getting, getting to understand their level of interest and, um, you know, what their goals and objectives are. That's, it's, it's as simple as that. Um, I'm a big return on investment guy. So, you know, I don't believe the guy needs to spend a million dollars doing this to get the biggest return possible. You know, we do, uh, you know, I got the $5 food plot uh, concept. You know, my son and I go out and, you know, we put down food plots and they, you know, with everything said and done, the food plots maybe only cost five to $10. And so, you know, I'm trying to relate to the common man. Now I have clients that are very, you know, well off and really money's no object. And those are nice clients to have. Um, you know, but personally I'm not, you know, I'm not one of those guys. And right. so it's more relatable to me to, to kind of make the, you know, the best out of a situation like that. And, and the other piece of it, and this is a philosophy thing that there's another habitat guy that I know that's really sharp guy. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's how deep do you want to go into the design and how far do you want to micromanage it to the point where 
it's completely optimized, um, you know, for, for what, for what your goals and objectives are. If you just want to shoot deer, man, we can make that happen. If you want to grow big bucks, we can absolutely make that happen. Um, it's just time and effort at that point and, and integrity and, and staying true to your goals and objectives. So that's, that's kind of where this start is. And then when you go to start frameworking everything, that's where the Q and a starts and getting their knowledge base down, understanding what they, you know, what they perceive is appropriate in their conditions. And then, either trying to fix that or just amplify what they're doing. A lot of times guys are doing really smart things. And they just need a small boost of confidence. And, you know, uh, when, when you talk about successional field uh, management, uh, dealing with forest management, there's real basic concepts you can get into. Just, it's just, it's a game changer and it's really not hard. Guys believe they got to spend thousands of dollars on these consultants. And, and it's crazy. That's crazy to think that way. Um, you can do a lot more with a lot less and get a great result out of it. And so, you know, it's the same thing. It's all about educating and, and, and kind of building a community of, of, hey, you know, this is a family that people want to get things done and, and work to a common goal. So that's kind of really my approach to it. And I'll stay with a client for a couple of years. I mean, um, you know, I've got a couple of clients where they want to do long-term things and they want me to set up their properties. And, you know, I call it the C. Bartilla situation where an individual is going in and sticking with these clients. And, and I like doing that, but, you know, I, that doesn't feed the common guy that could really use that small push. So I'm kind of in the middle on that topic. So long-winded answer, but that's where I'm at. Okay, cool. So then, <laughs> so you, you're a land consultant, and you go in and you, you talk about what their goals are, and you kind of get a feel for what they want, and then you pro, you present a plan to them on what you can do on their property to make those goals a reality, right? Make that dream a reality. And, yeah. and so this is kind of a, a slight transition into today's topic, which is how weather and wind affect a, a particular property and how you might be able to design a property to help with some tricky situations like wind direction and thermals and uh, how all of those uh, barometric pressure affects the property and affects deer movement, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's a big part of it. I think a lot of people don't think about that when they're designing a property and you know, it plays into it far greater than I think people recognize because, again, it's that one variable. You can't control that. You can't manipulate that to some degree. And we'll talk about how you can manipulate the wind. There are instances where you can do that, um, and you can have success doing that. And I, I, I don't think, I don't think any other consultants would approach it that way. And maybe they do, but you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, how detailed are you willing to go to make this exactly what you want? Yeah. Um, and some of the things that people are doing uh, in the industry, you know, they've got some really smart ideas. There's a lot of smart guys out there doing this type of stuff. So, Okay. Well, first, the first thing I want to kind of get at is wind basics, right? And I've done a lot of talking about this recently, how terrain affects wind movement. I've talked a little bit about thermals. Um, I've barely, I've barely touched on uh, barometric pressure and, and how thermals kind of play a role uh, in barometric pressure as well. But from your experience, why don't you just in your, in your little notes here that you sent me, you have facts of wind and then you listed thermals, terrain, upper air, uh, upper air considerations, uh, meaning the, the 
barometric pressure and mercury levels. So why don't you kind of talk to us a little bit about facts of the wind and, and wind basics? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, one thing I think, you know, you need to understand is you need to look at the area that you're in, right? Um, you know, we're in the northern hemisphere, right? So the big thing is, you know, you know, let's say my latitude's 40, 45 degrees. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to distinguish, okay, what are my general conditions? Well, I can tell you from, you know, Canada, parts of Canada down to Florida, you know, those areas typically have westerly winds. I mean, that's the typical scenario, right? The, the way the earth rotates, um, you know, so the you know, orientation of things, that curves the wind to, to kind of rotate in that way. Now, that's a generality. That doesn't necessarily apply to ground wind. Um, in the fall, you'll start to notice kind of these polar vortexes or the polar um, uh, troposphere starts to drip down into the lower half of the state, and that brings colder temperature. Um, it also can bring high-pressure systems. And everyone talks about how high pressure, high pressure, that's so good. And when we talk about high pressure, we're talking about high barometric pressure. So in the state, in the States, we measure that kind of in inches. So, you know, people hear the number, you know, 30.2 inches. Oh, the barometric pressure is going up. What does that mean? So we can talk about that. But generally speaking, that can mean good things for deer hunting. Um, to give you a little bit of basics, you know, I remember the juries a couple of years ago coming on a warrior to hunt. And they were talking about, you know, what barometric pressure does and how, air rises well you know you could if you boil that down barometric pressure is a big component in 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 the facts of how weather systems affect the earth and the pressure that's above the high pressure that's above is pushing downward and it just kind of sustains in these columns these air pockets essentially and as these high pressure systems sits over these areas um compounds that come off our body they're carbon compounds right um they start to evaporate and they rise up and heating air condition or heating conditions, the heat influx. So solar radiation comes down, hits, hits the ground and it starts to raise up, you know, these molecules. So when they talk about your molecules going up in the air, that's, that's one of the basic things to know. That's why high pressure systems, everyone's like, Oh, I want to run a high pressure system. Well, from a hunting standpoint, it's a great thing from a deer movement standpoint. We can talk about that as well. That also is a good factor. And they've done studies on, I think, barometric pressure and its impacts, the telemetry studies, and they've come up with some inconclusive information. But, you know, anyhow, it's, it's all interesting. So back real quick, the other thing to consider is the jet stream, right? Jet stream cruises across, and it pushes air masses in certain ways, and it creates kind of a pathway for storms. So that's another thing to look at. Um, so we said high pressure really is associated with a lot of times with colder air and low pressure is kind of associated with warmer air. So when you look at, I don't know, you look at a, a wind map or you look at, um, uh, you know, you look at a, a weather map, um, when you start to diagnose like what's going on, you'll see, you know, these cold and warm air masses kind of sitting and fighting or in some cases they actually kind of work in and flow with each other. And it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting scenario. Um, the, the biggest thing that, that relates to wind is when you have a high-pressure system and a low-pressure system, um, the high-pressure system is always moving towards a low-pressure system. And when that happens, depending on the grade of pressure in each one of those systems, uh, you kind of get a, a grade of wind. So if the pressure gradient's high between those two or high, there's a great difference between those two, you're going to have a greater degree of wind. Um, and the type of pressure system also dictates the way the wind moves. So you know, when you start to look at all these factors, you can simplify it down to, you know, what's happening in the sky 
and what's happening when these pressure systems absolutely affect the earth. Um, and the earth's surface has, has a major impact. And in a high pressure scenario, you typically have kind of drier, colder days. And the, the sun has the ability to create these uh, convection cycles. So basically it hits, hits the ground, uh, a heat influx builds. And as a result of that, you start to get kind of thermal, uh, thermals, and sometimes you get thermal, uh, uh, thermal turbulence as a result of that. And that all fluctuates into, you know, all these different factors working into, you know, weather impacts our hunting scenarios. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated. Uh, Low-pressure systems, they typically have more humidity in there. What does humidity do uh, in a scenario where there's a lot of odor? So there's, there's factors that play into that. Um, but the bottom line is just for, for, you know, more of a simple perspective on things is, you know, looking at the wind, looking at the apps um, that, that we have available to us and all the, you know, the, all the, uh, all the internet information, you know, you can look at these pressure systems and usually uh, pressure system rising is a good thing and pressure system, pressure systems falling is not necessarily a great thing for hunting. Um, but in all reality, they both have their benefits and they both have their, you know, their, their negatives. So you kind of got to look at it in a, a bunch of different shape, ways, and forms. Okay. So that, that's so, kind of some, some general basics. So let's dumb it down for guys like me. Okay. And okay. so, so let's say high pressure, a high pressure day. Yep. Uh, and I don't, I don't want to add wind into the equation right now. So necessary. Um, so when we think of a high pressure day, we think of a storm has just worked through. Um, there's not a lot of clouds in the sky. It may be bright and sunny. And um, it's one of those days where maybe the thermals are coming up because it's sunny and it's a, a high pressure system, which uh, according to what you said with a humidity may, means the air is less thick if that makes sense. So everything might be going up. Yeah. Generally speaking, the, pri- the high pressure system pushes down on the earth, cold air sinks, warm air rises. Okay. Simple as that. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and, and then you, yep. And then you, like you said, the sun is another factor in that equation as well. So, okay. So obviously when you heat things, the, the heat rises, right. And uh, those yep, are the days. Yeah. Those are the days where, um, you know, are, those are some of my favorite days to hunt because you can feel the wind coming up and you, it's almost no, when you get to your tree stand location, you feel safe in there, right? You feel like <laughs> your, yeah. your sense going straight up. You're not going to have a lot of problems. Maybe the wind's there, maybe it's not, but you know, your odor's going up now on the flip side of that, we have a low pressure system that comes in. You said a lot of a humidity and that tends to pull air down to where now you might you might be messing around with you know adding the wind wh- whether it's high wind or low wind uh, speeds that now your scent is probably going to be going down which is one of those days that we don't really like yeah i mean your wind you know the wind obviously has a factor in that but the pressure system itself it's not rising um at the same rate you're the warm like we talked about the warm organic compounds are not rising at the same rate right they're rising at it i guess at more of a stagnant rate um the other piece of it like the humidity factor is is huge in that and that a lot of times suppresses cold air but then when cold air is introduced into those systems which it is at times you know those cold air systems and high humidity is is it's almost kind of a disaster situation for hunting. 
Um, so, you know, we can talk about that later, but that to me are, you got to figure out what conditions work for hunting. Really, usually the best conditions are kind of those kind of airless dry days um, with stable winds. Really, that's kind of what you want to focus in on, and, and that's not always plausible. So you got to, you know, you, you kind of got to see what the scenario is that's going to benefit you once once you kind of enter the enter the woods. So yeah, and I, I take it that you know, and I'm not no deer biologist, but I have a feeling that deer move more through high pressure days or, or so people say, right? Like you said, some of the evidence is non-conclusive, but some on these high pressure days where people um, assume the deer move more, there's a little bit more consistency in the wind um, and the air is drier to where they may be able to use their nose a little bit better as opposed to a high humidity, low pressure day. Yeah, I wish that was kind of true. Um, <laughs> you know, it's in one theory. of those scenarios where, well, here's the theory, right? Moisture is a is a benefit um, in most times. When we talk about moisture, let's we'll, we'll talk about relative humidity. That's a huge benefit to deer. Um, it helps their, we talk about olfactory, right? We talked about, we haven't gotten to that point, but when you talk about those type of things, um, anything that benefits deer, right? They're using going to use it from a safety security standpoint. So it's almost a catch-22. The days that are sometimes the worst days to hunt, um, are the best days for them. Um, and it's, it's almost an opposition. Now I think behaviorally it's, you know, innate behavior in deer is they love, absolutely love to move on high pressure days. And I've seen it over and over and over again. Um, and it, it almost happens sometime after that initial high pressure front comes through. It's not initially right when that high pressure front comes through. It's, it's sometime after that. So that stabilizes a little bit. And I think the conditions are, are ripe. And I, I almost think when we talked about um, uh, a lot of times rain exists, and then when rain hits the ground, it exposes all these, um, you know, volatile organic compounds that come out of the ground. And the deer are walking along kind of smelling those. And that's just my theory. Um, it kind of makes the environment a little bit more fruitful for the nose. And, you know, more compounds in the air, man, the deer just freaking eat that up. And I think that's that might be a factor in that. You see a lot of scraping after after rainstorms. And you can see, like, kind of like a lot of rutting activity you know, during the rut after rainstorms. And it, it may not necessarily it may be the timing of things, but it also may be the conditions that are present. Um, yeah. They're they're suppressed during weather systems. Shit, they study, you know, they studied, uh, you know, birds and other animals and how they react to weather pressure systems. And you know, there's, I don't know how much deer have been studied in this respect, but I got a buddy who's an ornithologist, and you know, they study sparrows, and they say, man, you know, their behavior is, man, they eat really, really heavy right before and right after a storm, and they're totally, you know. Uh, you know, you know, they're, they're not active and nothing, you know, physically, uh, nothing from a physical side, but from just from a, from a movement side, you know, there's a lot of that behavior going on and they've studied it more with, you know, uh, other animals, uh, you know, and, and birds being an example. Um, so I definitely think that there's something similar going on. And, and I think the pressure, you know, they can kind of sense the pressure change. I know birds can from, you know, they're, they're you know, they detect it through their ears. And, and, and whitetails are, are likely the same scenario there. I don't know what studies have been done on that. But, you know, like you said, there's a lot of movement in those, in those conditions. Yeah. It, it is interesting. Before and after a, a front moves through. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you said. Yeah. So... The next, the next thing on your list here is a study of fluid dynamics and how air in, you know, how air moves 
you know, let's see, it says how, how air is moved in dynamic, non-static non, uh, and ever-changing yeah. types of uh, uh, winds. Explain to us about, about what you mean by fluid dynamics. So um, fluid dynamics is kind of the study of, um, you know, gas and water um, in, in a dynamic state, you know, in a moving state. Um, I always think of a simple example of, uh, you know, a lot of guys like to say, well, if you can, if you can, if you know how a stream flows, you know how the wind flows through, through, through land. And there's direct similarities. Um, when you think about, you know, um, the, the one difference between the two of, of water flowing through a stream and air flowing, flowing through terrain is, you know, there's a difference in, we talked about the high pressure systems you know, high pressure compressing the air below it uh, from the atmosphere. That's completely different. There's, there's not a similar, there are some similarities in, in water density and how it shifts around. But generally speaking, there's not that type of pressure that, that kind of suppresses water or changes the way the water flows so much. Um, it, water water is, is kind of a, a fluid example of, of the way, um, again, air would would be analogous um and and i really think that that's almost the simplest way to kind of look at it um the, the other thing is you know if you think about kind of water uh we're thinking about flooding you know when water kind of rises and floods uh it experiences kind of different obstacles and that's the same thing with with air as the pressure uh builds or, or or kind of removes itself you know that that changes some conditions that are that are present kind of in the landscape of how how you know air flows in, into our, our woodlots or across our fields or over a mountain so you know uh, you know basically you got to think of everything kind of in a moving state and and when we talk about air is moving from the east or west it, you know air is not one dimensional it's multi-dimensional uh, and it has multiple multitude of speeds and it changes speeds and it it gusts and it it kind of retains back to itself. So gust low and you, you get to experience a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, um, you know, the, 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 the variances. Um, and it's very similar to, uh, to what you would experience uh, in, in kind of a, a, a water scenario. So you'll see a lot of yeah. similarities in that, but basically the study of fluids and gas in a dynamic state, that's, that's kind of what the similarity is. So layers almost. Right. Um, yeah. Like yeah. oil and water, yeah. right. The oil sits on the top of the, the water, you know, if you were doing those those experiments as a kid, right, you would see the different thick, you know, you would see the, the layers. And I really didn't look at that kind of aspect until one day, it was a high pressure day, and there wasn't a lot of wind, and I get into a tree stand. And I was taking an access route where I was walking through a low spot, and then I 90 degree hooked right up into my tree stand and got in there, and it was cold. As I was walking in, but I could, as I climbed the tree, I could feel the air getting warmer on my face. And I was blowing a, I was blowing a, uh, the synthetic little fiber to uh, check my wind. And it just floated, it was just floating there. And it, I would, I watched it come at me and then I watched it go away from me almost like a tide, <laughs> almost like the tide. Yeah. And needless to, yeah. needless to say that particular day I got busted several times because my scent cone wasn't going anywhere. It was just 
concentrated right around me and then it would go up the draw and down the draw and up the draw so basically that whole draw smelled like I did and um, I got busted quite a few times that day and I learned that I can't hunt that I can't hunt there in those conditions which is crazy because then as the sun um, started rising the wind picked up you know uh, and with warmer temperatures comes a little bit of wind and then it sucked everything out of the draw and then the deer started showing up uh after that that change that happened so yeah it was really interesting to see how not necessarily the wind but the air temperatures almost had these layers to them that just were sitting there until the sun played its part in warming up the terrain and then the wind kind of kicked kicked in and sucked all that cold air right out of the bottom up into the up into the fields and um it just kind of opened my eye it opened my eyes and it just gave me personally another thing to think about when choosing my tree stand locations and how yeah and it just you know a guy could a guy could sit here and be as detailed as as he wanted to be and hyper you know hyper focused on all these small details or he could just go out and hunt but i i feel like the deer and how they move in it was almost like the deer were stacking up somewhere and then waited for that change to come through and then that's when they started moving into the area or moving through because there was a consistent wind at that point but by then i had been busted several times you know what i mean yeah 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 yeah, and that, you know those are circumstances that are kind of hard to predict until you experience them. You yeah. know that's that, that's the kind of beauty of of kind of going through the the learning process. Yeah. And yeah, no, I've had similar experiences, so I can completely relate. You know, that's I love that. I love learning about that stuff. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 All right. So the next thing I want to kind of lump all these into one conversation because um, the impact of trees and terrain on uh on wind but before we we talk about that are there any any tendencies that you've seen over the years um that wind will do this or wind never does this or tendencies well no i i would say there there are situations where wind you know wind is unpredictable you know and when you start to look at you know if you've if you got an app um that starts to show you, okay, the wind's going to change or shift here, you know, almost, almost use that as kind of an initial basis. Okay. There's going to be a shift and how is that going to impact, you know, where the wind's generally going to go. And a lot of those conditions aren't necessarily completely relatable to your scenario. Um, what I have seen, uh, particularly in high pressure days, um, you get uneven, uneven heating of the earth's surface and you'll get like, uh, an example, you'll get a, uh, you've got a high dense canopy area, old forest, and let's say it's got a lot of conifers in the understory um, for whatever reason. Uh, let's say they're hemlocks, for example, and, and they kind of retain next to this old forest. Well, that old, cold area is just this pool later on in the evening that just becomes usually the seepage path. And thermals just kind of flow and ebb and everything like that in, into those areas. They, it generally goes to low spots. As the wind starts to kind of die down in the evening, um, you know, thermals start to really take over. Um, again, but back to the afternoon, 
this heating and difference in either topography or dense cover creates these pockets of cold air that push and pull against each other. Um, usually cold air wins out, but, you know, they kind of shift, like you said, in density. And that could, that could be a game changer for those last couple hours when it's critical. So um, the one thing I would recognize is when guys are in the woods and they're saying, okay, I'm in a great scenario here to kill this deer I'm going after, you know, expect the unexpected and experience is going to start to show you, holy crap, there's all these things going on in the, in, 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 in the woods that I can't really either visualize or fully understand. And that's going to start to trigger, okay, how do I decipher what's going on? And, and, and we're all going to struggle with that. Um, every condition is, is unique and every weather condition is slightly different. Um, but, but again, man, those mornings, they tend to be a little bit more stable some hours after high pressure systems. The wind is usually a little bit more stable and you can kind of see that, you know, what's the wind like, is it about the same? Um, when there's instability in the upper atmosphere, there's a lot of instability on the ground. So you get a lot of those gusts and squalls and those are bad, bad scenarios. And those are, those are the days you don't decide not to go in the woods. Um, you know, if you're going to pick and choose days, Stay away from those gusty days because the wind is every which way. And particularly in valleys and areas in low spots, you know, these are all day scenarios. You know, those aren't really areas that are necessarily beneficial um, unless they're dead zones that you can kind of block off to deer and you don't have to worry about them going back there. Um, But usually those are kind of dangerous scenarios. A lot of guys like to hunt, you know, higher, flatter ground. It's usually a, a good recommendation. Um, not the only recommendation, but that's, that's a good option. So, you know, I I can't give you specific scenarios and say, you know, wind tends to stabilize in these conditions, look at your weather conditions. And as you sit there and assess, like, you know, you said you're using some synthetic, but whatever you're using milkweed or bubbles or what are you ever using to assess the wind conditions, see how that changes during the day and focus hard on the weather conditions that are present that make that change. Um, you'll be amazed at what the difference is during high and low pressure days and how the wind moves and, and, and definitely expect more unstable winds on low pressure days. I've seen that more so than not. Um, yeah. so those are two things you can, you can kind of, kind of run with as rules of thumb. Yeah. That makes sense. How, with that said, I feel like one thing that I've learned, um, in, in the last five years, I've really been focused on how terrain affects winds, um, and how it can, you can, if, if you pay attention to it, you could probably find an area and use that to your advantage because it, let's just say there's a shifting wind it's coming from the West. And by the end of the hunt, it's going to be a North. If you can find a terrain feature, um, in a specific area. And I'm not saying this is the rule of thumb for everything, but, um, and and I'm saying this for one of the, uh, a particular place that I hunt. Uh, I have a tree stand location where if it's a consistent win, it's awesome. But if it's a not consistent win, and I'm going to be hunting that tree stand over a wind shift period, the terrain makes the wind do the same thing because it's just it's just force so it may it may be inconsistent let's say 100 yards up the draw but i've what i've done is through trial and error found a location or a tree stand where it's the wind's crazy ahead of me but by the time it gets to me the terrain has funneled it down into a consistent wind the entire time 
Yeah, yeah. No, you, yeah, you've nailed something there. I mean, there's definitely static conditions that definitely present similar scenarios. Streams tend to do that. Um, low depressions tend to do that. Um, they become focal points for air movement, regardless of you know what the actual wind's doing. I've, I've seen that over and over again. And yeah, those are just trial and error, learning right. how wind flows through through the landscape. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, the next the next step really is specific terrain features because I feel like if you're hunting a gradual um, increase in elevation or decrease in elevation, the wind, you know, there's so many different uh, uh, scenarios that you could throw at this, but if you're on a a gradual versus steep type of terrain feature, I have a feeling that the, the, the more subtle terrain feature will allow you to be safer as far as wind direction, but the increase in elevation of faster, the wind may hit it and do some crazy things. What's your, what's your experience with that? Yeah, yeah, that's, 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 you know, you, you kind of started to nail it. You know, if you look at a real silly example, right. And let's take, let's make sure when we talk about this, we don't talk about trees, right. We're just thinking about like general terrain. So we, we got a hillside with no trees on it and wind is coming from the West and it's blowing over to the East, right? Simple, simple scenario. Um, the speed, right. And, and conditions that are present, higher low pressure systems affect how that wind hits that mountain or that hill. And then on the other side of that hill, the steepness, right. Affects the degree of, uh, vortexing or waves or eddies, whatever terminology you want to use the curling of that wind. And then not the complicated, but the thermal conditions impact that as well. So the degree of variance, as you look at the backside, we'll say the leeward side, so the opposing side, that degree of change, that slope has a uh, benefit or detriment to, to the way that, that wind kind of curls in that scenario. Um, and, you know, when you start to throw trees on it, again, it's another condition that will impact how wind moves. So it's not as simple as saying wind travels over a surface and it follows down the backside of it. It moves, ebbs and flows, and changes in different um, axes. Um, wind will actually even over a over a, a steep slope on the other side. I've seen it curl backwards, and you're like, "How is that even possible?" Right. Um, and there's 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 you know potentially an air mass some distance away that's putting pressure on another another area that actually propels wind in a different direction. So not the complicated, but it's extremely complicated. But that's a, that's a basic scenario. <laughs> that's a great quote. Not to complicate things, <laughs> yeah. but this is extremely complicated. <laughs> it is, man. It is. It's more than complicated. Right. You know? And I tell you what, um, the deer use, they, it's almost like they can smell like we see, right? We see a leaf yeah. float in, a, yeah. in the wind, and they can see the wind through their nose almost. If that, if that makes sense. And I agree. Yeah. I, I, I think you're right on there. Yeah. So, so it's like, yeah. oh, well, I can't walk over there. Cause look, I mean, look at the wind, look what it's doing. I can't, I got well, I to go here. You know, we we're talking about, I was talking the other day with a client, we're talking about saddles. I'm like, man, I love saddles. He's like, Why do you love saddles? I'm like, saddles are the perfect example of what people think is it's an easy path to travel typically. Right. Right. Well, did you realize, you know, when a deer is traveling through a saddle, there's usually pressure created based on the, the wind or thermal conditions that suppress air in those areas. 
and they become these wind pools. Yes. And everyone's like, well, I mean, is that really the main reason they will? I can't tell you if it's the main reason, but they're, you know, they're focused on safety and their the precautionary measure is, hey, let me check out the wind condition here and, and to ensure my safety as I go approach something, particularly when you're coming up a hillside. So people think it's just the path of re- least resistance is absolutely not. Guys want to position themselves in certain, uh, you know, relationships with those saddles. By goodness, good luck to you, because those are conditions where if you're not positioning yourself correctly, um, your wind is going to pull up or your your scent molecules are eventually going to pull up in the, those areas and, and, you know, the hunt's over. Yeah. So, you know, it, it becomes really complicated based on the terrain features that are present. But that, that's that's really one good example to consider. You know, saddles aren't necessarily the, the path of least resistance. Um, they're also another function that, that's that's beneficial to the deer. So. Yeah. And I tell you, I'll tell you one thing. And again, this is a scenario type quest or a scenario type um, example. But I love hunting when all the leaves are falling off the tree, especially after maybe there's been a big frost, right? And there's been a, yep. and the wind yep. picks up maybe just a little bit. And then now you can start actually seeing what the wind is doing with the leaves, right? And I just, I find it crazy that, you know, in, on the farm that I spend most of my time during the rut, there is, it, there's a lot of terrain and then there's fields where there's not a lot of terrain, but yeah. there's, there's these scenarios where, you know, everybody knows and every, everybody has heard the podcast or the conversation about deer are walking one third of the way down so they can catch the wind coming off. They don't necessarily have to expose themselves. Well, from what I've gathered is that the reason that they're at these points on a specific wind is that on the back end, there's wind coming up that hill at some point as well. And typically that, Mm -hmm. that trail that is predominant on that hillside or where these deer are moving from allows them to smell what's coming up and what's coming down, creating, I guess what you would call a wind pool, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could call that. Yeah, they. You know, I think I would refer to a kind of a vortex tunnel. A vortex and tunnel. And okay. that can. Yeah, yeah. And that that travels up and down. You know that hillside, and as wind sometimes pools in kind of that vortex. Well, let's just say it happens to be you know a third of the way down uh, off the top side of the hill, or, or whatever you know whatever conditions there. If you got a logging road higher, it may be higher. Um, but you know those are those are ideal scenarios for deer deer to cruise on and that's that's that can plays right into that other example i gave you so you know those are those are scenarios where deer are taking advantage of the conditions that we don't necessarily perspectively see i mean i love when we get snow right um snow is a scenario we get a lot of snow up in my area right snow blankets the ground so you don't get a lot of thermal changes in fact you get hardly any thermal changes in those conditions and high canopy um, with with heavy dense foliage that limits thermal thermal conditions um, and so those are those are assuming it's consistent those conditions really um, eliminate that thermal vortex so you'll see deer actually sitting higher or lower and I see a lot of times are lower because um, it's a safety thing they don't want to expose themselves they don't have the benefit of the wind so I think behaviorally they're impacted based on the conditions so I, I think there's another there's another component there to think about um, but you know, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting. And, and, you know, the degree of gustiness um, changes the way that they move. And I love those consistent winds. 
um, in the scenario you gave earlier, you know, you start to figure out, well, how high do I need to go up on the hillside to kind of eliminate, you know, my uh, impact onto this vortex? Because we talked about this condition where these, these vortexes or waves kind of start to tumble down the hill. And if you don't have thermal conditions present and you're too low in the tree, you know, you'll start to see your scent slowly, slowly, even on a warm day, go down the hillside farther than you think. So, you know, there'll be a shift in movement as well based on those conditions. And I've, I've seen that happen a lot. Um, so there's, there's a lot to consider, um, you know, in, in other aspects. Um, and then, you know, one other thing to add in is we talked about, you know, we're, we're, we're really talking about thermals again, um, the heating and shifting on different days, you know, uh, the sun intensity is a factor, uh, you know, the, 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 the volume of clouds, that just impacts how much sun is potentially going to hit the ground. And that, that degree of change, you know, the rapid increase, you know, sometimes that rapid increase um, not only increases, you know, the thermal flow, it increases the wind flow. So you get these, you know, major changes that you wouldn't expect in the woodlots. And, and then you get on the other side of it, um, you know, where the sun isn't present. And you're, instead of having that thermal rise, you actually, actually, it's, it's pulling below. It's pulling on the west side of the hill. And you're like, well, how is that even possible? Um, so there's, 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 really, there's really complicated scenarios that come into play um, based on a whole bunch of environmental factors when you start to look at, you know, where you want to orientate yourself in relationship to, to where you think the deer are going to travel based on the wind. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, to, it's tricky. Yeah. To elaborate on that, another thing that I found um, out this year, was you know again not a scientific breakthrough or anything but the yeah. edge that's created right whether it is a a timber line and a field edge or something uh not as subtle or not as distinct you know like there here's a here is an open field and here's the woodlot it starts boom field edge but yeah in the timber i've noticed that we have a uh, an edge open forest meets thicker forest and what I've tend to found is there's a lot of sign on that tra- transition, right? From the open forest yep. into the thicker forest. Well, that they like that edge, you know, to walk on. But I think what I'm starting to realize is, and I think underlying is what we've talked about today is there's also a vortex of sorts or a thermal break right at that point to where they are walking it because of the the thickness or the wide openness creates a a zone in in that transition that allows them to be more comfortable from a you know from their yeah, olfactory standpoint. I, I, yeah, I can't I can't agree with you more. Uh, you know that's that that right there is 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 you know master level stuff in my opinion. You know, yeah. as wind hits this this edge and there's you know vegetation, we'll say you know waist high vegetation, chest high vegetation. And depending on the density of the leaf foliage of that, that tends to slow down the wind movement. Yep. You know, the, the most wind isn't isn't typically at the ground level, but you know, it's it's that it's it, a lot of times it's at you know face you know ten foot tall you know in that range. But the wind that is present in those areas, what ends up happening is it hits this, you know, hits this barrier that's permeable, right? And it flows through it and it slows it down. And on the backside of that, you start to get these, uh, well, again, these same vortexes. And then within those woodlots, there's other pressure systems brewing. That woodlot could be colder as a result of the canopy, and that could allow the air to kind of sit still 
on the back side of that. Um, it, it, you know, there's those conditions that are present. Now, you can manipulate that a little bit, but thermals aren't stopped by foliage. Uh, wind isn't stopped by foliage. It's just slowed down. Right. And, um, you know, you, you kind of got to look at that as a factor when you're you're kind of, um, you know, coming up with the design. I mean, there's, there's, there's some, you know, types of conifers or, you know, um, you know native warm season gra- grasses, depending on the density and the way they're planted, they can be great barriers to eliminating wind. Um, and, and, and I say that, that's a poor term. We, we don't eliminate wind, we're reducing wind. And, um, you know, those are, those are things that you can do where you can encase woodlots to kind of minimize the impact. And my gosh, you know, in our area, you, you're going to start sitting on the edge of the field you're asking for problems. Um, you know, guys want to hunt food plots, man, I, you know, those are interesting scenarios, but you start to creep up to the edge. You're asking for, you know, difficult situations because the wind tends to pull in those areas because of the slowness of that friction that's present it creates a roughness in the wind flow and it eliminates, you know, that kind of steady gust. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, I, I think you've nailed that. So we've talked a lot about a lot of things. So when, when, you now gather this information off of a specific property and now it's time to actually design it. How do you use what we've already talked about into designing a property or implementing some type of habitat work to put all of these things that we've discussed into the hunter's favor? Yeah. um, So, you know, one of the examples you brought up was, you know, the wind likes to flow a certain way in terrain. When you walk a property, you can kind of digest that. Um, so you know what areas are going to be kind of, you know, poor areas to focus on or great areas to focus on. There's areas that are dead zones. Um, I, I hunt an area where there's a waterfall, and, you know, that actually tends to be a great area um, as long as you position yourself correctly. So there's areas where you can kind of um, – you know, focus in on that, you know, that the terrain features are going to work towards good hunting spots and you direct your kind of maybe in those areas with some form of habitat manipulation, um, you know, create focal points for them to kind of engage in. And then obviously sometimes those are great access points too. So, you know, these, these, um, you know, steep cliff areas where, where I can hunt, hunt a lot of rolling topography, you know, you can access through those, um, sometimes mornings and evenings and they're great scenarios for getting in and out um, and, and, and they become dead zones. Um, the other example that I kind of gave earlier was encasing properties. Um, if you take a, a woodlot and you consider encasing it, and let's say you use uh, in our area, we use a lot of uh, Norway's and white spruces. Um, You know, when you're looking at a woodlot, you can consider trying to encase it. And, and what I mean by that is you create, you know, um, you know, kind of a softer edge. You could use native warm season grasses up to a point. And then on the back side of that, you know, kind of around the exterior, you start. 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20. Um, in our case, you know, in the north, uh, Norway spruce works really good, white spruce. Um, you know, that kind of blocks wind. Um, and, and so when you want to eliminate um, some of the wind movement, those are, those are general considerations that you, you, could, you could utilize. Um, other things to consider when you're designing your property, a lot of people are logging trails. Logging trails become a pathway for wind to travel down. And 
they have. That can be a bad thing. Uh, pretending if you know these areas have slope to them, those those air drafts, and we're talking about thermals and cold temperatures sinking, um, you know, they they end up getting pushed into these logging trails. Um, the other thing is people like to use water, dead dead space. Um, a lot of times, you know, there's a bank and there's some height to the areas around water. Um, people think the water is pulling in the cold. Thermals not are creating a push, but they're actually having air that, because the, the weight of the air is actually sinking into those areas. And water sometimes is warmer. It actually creates a kind of thermal push, and you'll get to see kind of that, you know, fogus kind of effect kind of coming. You know, those can be good dead zones for, for your wind to travel, and it, it eliminates, you know, the deer's ability to access in those, those certain areas, depending on the way they're designed. Um, you know, creating to the deer to travel is, is absolutely a big thing. So you eliminate, you know, where the wind is bad. Um, you know, uh, one interesting scenario we did last year was in a field that kind of had a little bit of role to it. We created depressions. So where we wanted the deer to enter, we wanted to give them that thermal advantage, particularly evening. So we're going with a, you can use your loader, you, you dig it by hand, um, you know, creating these small depressions where it meets up with a deer trail and that creates a thermal pool. Um, that, that's Man, that is some like, that's like some top end, um, like that's some top end, high detailed management to where you're, you're not necessarily, man, you know, like everybody always talks about habitat management from a vegetation, food source, uh, cover, whatever type of you know, conversation, but now here, here you are altering the terrain to affect thermals. Yeah. That's like next level stuff. Yeah. The other thing we're doing too, is actually we're building within bedding areas. You know, I'll go in with the dozer and uh, I'll create berms in bedding areas because I want them laying on a certain leeward side. Um, you know, I'll give you another example. Um, people, you know, hate hinge cutting. I love hinge cutting uh, in certain conditions. Um, you know, there's this, phase against it because it's, it's a safety thing. Well, you know, I like these doghouse type scenarios, but, you know, I always wonder why deer bed towards tops. Well, tops had the densest cover, right? Um, and um, I was just hinge cutting on my own property, uh, scotch pine. Um, and, and why would you hinge cut scotch pine? Well, the structure is such where I want the deer to be able to go from one side of the tree to the other side of the tree, bedding near that top. That top creates kind of that, we keep talking about this vortex. Depending on the severity of that and the location, you can get deer to bed on either side of it, depending on, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's position within this bed, you know, within your bedding area. So what you're kind of doing is setting up, uh, you know, a scenario to give them the optimal wind balance of body positioning and, you know, uh, you know, I, I guess, I guess thermal advantage or wind advantage, depending on the condition. So you're setting up a multitude of those within those bedding areas. Okay, man, that's, wow. cr that's crazy. All right. So yeah. with, with all that said, uh, you know, you're, you're going in and you're doing a whole bunch of habitat work that affects thermals, affects wind direction, creates, yep. uh, either more more wind flow or less wind flow whatever now talk a little bit about these tips and tricks that you you'd sent me some about the height of a tree stand or box blinds or a trail camera trick or uh, and then adding all that up with historical oh, yeah, yeah. historical data yeah 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm a simple guy. We talked about return on investment. You can buy these little wind ribbons. Um, I think they're probably like 50 cents or a dollar. You can make your own. Um, so one of the things, because you can't necessarily rely on, on, on um, you know, sources of data because they're not in the same conditions. You know, you can't rely on wind data from, you know, uh, some source, you know, that's that an, as an airport. It's not in the same condition that you're running. Right. Some away. So when they take pictures, they're getting uh, indicators for what the wind is in that scenario. The best thing is to have tails on those because you can't always see the end of that wind ribbon. So that's a really good concept. I don't think I don't think a lot of guys think about that. As long as it's not triggering the camera, it really it really works out well. Um, height of the tree stands really really big. Um, you know I don't like to be very high in the tree stands, but really the studies have kind of proven that. You know, and, and you were talking a little bit. Well, okay. Closer woodlots, particularly at mid level, and you know, kind of the residual effect is, man, is there a right a right condition? Well, you got to play that out. You know, use your milkweed, use whatever device you use to kind of indicate what the wind's flowing. Um, you'll try to you'll start to gain an understanding of what height is appropriate. Height sometimes is a huge advantage. When we talked about getting on hillsides, if you get higher, sometimes you you minimize those vortexes that may collect or pull down. Uh, Clear, you know your scent molecules so you need to think about those 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 scenarios um you know i'm a big box blind guy and never was this way before but i've hunted so many difficult conditions and i know a lot of guys don't want to do a lot with scent control it's an annoyance so box blinds are a great thing now pick the best box blinds i, I focus on like you know box blind i'm not going to say a brand or a bunch of brands but focus on something that's independent of right scenarios and i am not a huge fan of ozone in those but you know guys that like to use ozone and it has absolute benefits and um you know that, that's a conversation for another day you know you can really minimize a lot um i, I really think the box blinds is a is a great great thing um i really wish uh, they that, would make a box blind at that point where it can fold up on your back and you can like i'm really mobile uh you know in my approach to deer hunting and a box blind it necessarily isn't a a mobile tactic but if they could if if they could make a uh some sort of mobile box blind that i could put up in a tree with me man i would love that <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 that would be that would be something that'd be something um you know, I have seen guys build, uh, you know, one-sided blinds. Um, right. Yeah. Sides and either part of the one side, kind of making kind of trifold. That's a really great concept, um, and it's cheap. You can do those pretty cheap and intersperse them amongst your woodlots. Um, that that does work well for for eliminating, you know, some form of wind breathing into location you don't want. Um, one other thing I should I think I should talk about, you know. Uh, a, a good thing is, you know, we talked about staying away from field edges. Um, when you. Ages of forest into that, that creates a big dispersion of wind uh, within these woodlots. So a lot of times we think the wind's just traveling, you know, at, at ground level or 30 feet above. Well, it's also traveling some, you know, we talked about density, right? Some level above the canopy and as that kind of travels over the canopy a lot of times in the evening it sinks into these areas and it vortexes around in different axes and it it can pull um you know into those zones. 
happening is you get busted. Um, you know, I had an example this year where, man, I thought I was golden, right? And I ended up killing the deer, fortunately enough, but there was an air mass behind me that I didn't really think about. It's like, man, the air was heating back there and actually was pushing. It was pushing against the wind direction. My thermals in a direction I did not anticipate. So, you know, I kind of got a little bit of a thermal drop. I got a little air drag. I got a little, you know, I got a little, you know, warm air mass kind of interact. Yeah at that point i'm like so again it's that predictability um but like when you walk into a wood line you got multiple options and you have a general sense of how wind moves and you have that flexibility to hunt different areas um you know that's that's the best thing you can do you know rely on the app for some basic information but you know use your instincts and what you've learned from your terrain and walk in, in the woods and drop in milkweed as you walk in as you start to assess okay what scenario yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah well man i uh i really appreciate you taking time to hop on the uh episode with me and chit chat about all of this um i have a feeling that you're going to be back on to talk about an, one of numerous things i'm, I'm kind of interested <laughs> in the uh in the um obviously the habitat management side of things get into a little bit more of that but the the product testing that you do uh so i might have to have you on the hunting gear podcast to bs on on that side as well but again thank you for your time i really appreciate you uh, hopping on and uh, talking about wind thermals terrain with us today yeah man thanks i appreciate it and uh you know just uh, one thing if uh, anybody wants to get a hold of me um you know i've, I've got a website uh, it's called whitetail landscapes And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes the episode. I apologize again for me sucking on a cough drop while recording that episode and some of the disruption towards the end. um, I'm going to do better to fix that issue. Other than that, huge shout out to John for taking time out of his day to talk wind with us. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast. The Average Conservationist, Prime Archery, Ozonics, Scent Elimination, Wasp Broadheads, Lone Wolf Portable Tree Stands, and of course our title sponsor vortex optics please go out and support the companies that support this podcast um, because when you do that means they support me and selfishly uh, that means i get to continue doing what i'm doing and you guys get awesome content so there's that and i think that's it i love you guys have a great one and uh, remember 2020 is about giving back so find something that you can give back to and give back to it have a good week